0: All right, we're back with the Dr. Bo Show. I'm Dr. Bo Beard. This is episode number 22. This is a solo cast where I'm gonna cover a few research articles, uh, a couple dealing with running, and one uh, that I'm gonna start with right now that's actually talking about a little bit of a shift in the demand for physical therapy or rehab as uh, COVID has changed our, I guess our work environment a little bit more or a little bit. Uh so an article out of the inquirer, and all these articles that I'm reviewing or talking about today will have links on the show notes. Uh head over to, to chirofarm.com backslash episode 22. Side note on that. Uh the Dr. Bo show will be moving to an all-new website bowbeard.com here in the next few weeks. I don't have an exact date on that. So all of the shows, uh, their backlog will be uh, there, but all future shows will be there. And as always, you can head over to your favorite uh, podcasts. Well, if you're listening, you're already listening, but Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, all that good stuff. So this article in the Enquirer titled, Working from Home Has Created New Demand for Physical Therapy, in quotes, your body just can't handle it. So this just, this was in Apple news. And I think I just, you know, happened upon it. It just struck me the title, first of all, to think the thought that there's a higher demand for physical therapy as people What this article surmises is that uh, people are becoming more sedentary. But while they're becoming more sedentary, uh, working from home, they're trying new things. So because there's not uh, maybe they couldn't go to the gym, they can't do their group classes, so they're doing maybe an online class, a video, a DVD. I don't know. Hopefully, nobody's still using VHSs. I don't know. Um, but it, it's really the the sitting, right? Or the the sedentary nature. So I'm reading a really interesting book by Dr. Daniel Lieberman, who is an evolutionary biologist out of Harvard, and it's called Exercise. And it talks about our anthropological and sociological relationship with exercise and he talks a little bit about how the demonization of sitting in particular has caused us to maybe have some wrong beliefs about sitting but now what we're seeing is that people are were again postulating that there's more of a demand for physical therapy because they're more sedentary hmm. so let's dive into this a little bit there are a lot of things that end up equating to somebody being in pain. Uh, being sedentary can be one. Um, if you sit for a prolonged time, um, in particular in something where you're uh, not sitting in an active fashion, AKA like a squat or sitting with your back not against a chair, um, you're going to have an inflammatory cascade that gets kicked off. Uh, you know, Just having to use your mu- muscles in an isometric or isotonic fashion, Uh, releases myokines, which are naturally anti-inflammatory. That's why exercise is anti-inflammatory. But when we talk about people reaching out and, you know, we go through this article, uh, I'm just looking at a quote here. It says, we've been seeing a lot more people getting aches and pains because of a significant shift in their activity level. You know, I have seen this in our office, that we, we see more people coming in be, and they're equating it to them being at home more. What I would say, though, is what is everybody else complaining about as they're at home? Uh, maybe we're making more trips to the refrigerator. I don't know if that's the best food choices every time. Uh, we're not as socially interactive, even if you know we're using something like I'm using on the podcast right now, like Zoom. That's still not technically natural human interaction. Um, our activity level is definitely lopsided. And then when we do go into activity, it's probably going up against being more sedentary. So the sedentary portion may be a part of this, but what we need to think about is, you know, the, the environment that surrounds human pain, which has a lot more to do with beliefs, emotional responses, relationships, social interaction, diet, sleep, uh, rest, then probably it does with movement, right? When, and I always tell people this or tell patients this when they're in the office, the lowest rung on my hierarchy of importance when it comes to treatment is movement, which sounds weird. It's in the name of my business. It's what we would say we're using for most of our modalities, but you can't move your way, rehab your way, exercise your way, manual therapy your way out of shitty relationships, poor diet, um, bad sleep. Like those are all much higher level things. So I just want to point out that, you know, again, this isn't a scientific article, uh, but I mean, they're interviewing physical therapists and uh, medical practitioners. Um, and then it says in here later, people are doing things in places they wouldn't normally be doing them, which sounds a little suspect. Uh, if things are all are out of whack at all, it puts a stress on your body and your body just can't handle it. Uh, some of this is just absolute crap, right? Like, humans are one of the most if not the most adaptable organism on earth i think we've shown that with the way we've been able to uh take over the earth more or less uh so to think that putting us inside a house more often or having us move a little less is just wreaking havoc on us is not not owing a lot to the adaptability of a human. So I just, I think that we're, we look at things um, through these microscopes, sometimes we get a little myopic and we need to kind of back up. And the reason I bring this up is not to, you know, argue with this article. It's to say, when you're dealing with pain in general, even if we weren't during this, you know, pandemic shutdown, uh, social isolation era of maybe it's not what I'm doing more of or what I'm doing less of, maybe it's a bunch of other stuff. And if you are working with somebody that's not paying attention to that other stuff, or you're not even aware that that's important, you may be stuck in a rut, which can be frustrating sometimes. So I just thought that was an interesting article. So let's get into some scientific articles. So here's one out of uh, the Journal of Orthopedic Sports Physical Therapy uh, from just about a month ago and titled this article is recreational runners with a history of injury, twice as likely to sustain a running related injury than runners with no history of injury, a one-year perspective cohort study. Uh, so I always like to throw out the the general stats so we can see like how robust the study is, um, how well designed it is. So 224 recreational runners average of 15 kilometers per week. So that's not a lot of running. I mean, these are, this is really low, um, I would say for even your amateur runners, uh, 89 women, 135 men, uh, pain is just a subjective, uh, uh, questionnaire and let's see. Yeah. So, I mean, they're basically tracking them over the course of a year. Now, what it doesn't say in here is how often they were recording pain levels, where the pain was, uh, but let's go to the conclusion and we'll talk about this a little bit. So there were 75 running-related injuries during the one-year surveillance period of a cumulative incidence proportion of 46%. So that 75 out of the 224, 46. 46. Uh, the most common injuries were to the knee and Achilles. So they were looking at areas of uh, impact. And then recreational runner, and then it surmises that if you have a previous injury, you're more likely to sustain a future injury. This isn't new information. Gray Cook is more famous than anyone for talking about this although people talking about it for a long time what i wanted to point out here to you know the runner the athlete the coach whoever's out there even clinicians that may not be aware which i'm sure most are that this study isn't looking at if you had a prior knee injury will you have a future knee injury if you have a prior achilles injury will you have a future achilles injury what somebody like Gray Cook would say is a future or a prior injury can lead to any injury. That's why we're a making sure we have a really good history. We have some sort of assessment or screening structure to our new patient exam that allows us to catch things that are non-complaint related. So if somebody comes in with knee pain and maybe that knee pain is being generated by poor ankle stabilization or mobility that we're drawing that up and maybe their poor ankle scenario is due to uh chronic ankle instability or prior ankle sprains or something like that so it's you know this isn't a new thought by any means just wanted to point this out that they're still researching this as if this is uh groundbreaking um totally not groundbreaking i'm glad they're looking at it statistically speaking but good thing to know here if you're a runner or athlete out there is it just because you have an ankle injury yeah are you more likely to sprain your ankle yes but you're also more likely to have an injury elsewhere all right, next article. This is just kind of an interesting one. This has also been studied quite a bit, a lot of different ways. So the this is out of the International Journal of Environmental uh, Public Health. So title of the article, the impact of wrist Precooling on physiological and perceptual responses during a running time trial performance in the heat. You gotta love how long and drawn out these titles are. I guess they have to be. Um, can you imagine like if people that wrote the titles of these articles were the same people that wrote titles of books. They'd be terrible at marketing. Um, so let's go right to the results on this one because I'm not going to dig into this one. It's just, uh, you know, here we go. Uh, during recovery, HRV, MAP, or fatigue were unaffected. We demonstrate that re- wrist, this is per cooling. There's a typo, pre-cooling, uh, elicited a faster running speed, though this coincidence with increased or coincides with increased heart rate. Although interestingly, sensations of effort and thermal comfort were unaffected despite the faster speed and higher heart rate. There's a lot of weird variables here, right? So they're saying that they ran faster with an increased heart rate. Okay, cool. Um, Sensations of effort and thermal comfort were unaffected. So they're saying that they ran faster but they still perceived uh, the same level of exertion. Um, so this is kind of like, I was just, uh, taking a test for a coaching certification and they talked about the effect of caffeine and how one of the big effects of caffeine is a decreased perceived exertion level, which I think is interesting that it's, you know, it's not just the stimulatory effect of keeping somebody awake. Um, but it's, you know, it's decreasing your perceived exertion for a lot of reasons, way to affects adenosine receptors and, uh, it's tied to dopamine uh, release. So yeah, I just thought that was interesting that, you know, we've heard in the past, even with weightlifting and things like that, that pre-cooling um, the body, you know, especially in sprint athletes can have an effect on core temperature and then that can have better outcomes. Again, I, I feel like sometimes I'm talking to a lot of runners, especially in endurance runners on the show. Is that gonna matter over the course of even something like a 10K? I don't know. Um, Cause these were, let's see if we can find. Well, this is on a 10K. So I would say once you get up over that though, you know, I just can't imagine that, you know, we obviously, we know that core temperature, the two things that are gonna going to raise body temperature during bouts of activity are Internal generation of heat and obviously exogenous heat, right? The the environment. And we know that that has a deleterious effect on, um, you know, everything time to exhaustion, perceived effort, power output. Uh, But I can't imagine in the course of a marathon that uh, cooling your core temperature down at the beginning is going to have an outcome on the end that's going to be great. Um, Yeah. Next article out of. Uh, some meta-analysis out of the Sports Health Journal. So effects of foot strike techniques on running biomechanics, a systematic review of meta-analysis. Uh, so this is right in my, my wheelhouse here. So this is a huge meta-analysis. Uh, so 723 studies of these 26 studies with a total of 472 per- participants were eligible for inclusion in the meta-analysis. So they looked at a lot of stuff and got it down to 26. Uh, level four evidence, so fairly high. Uh, and the conclusion of this and again we're looking at basically does foot strike what's that do to overall running mechanics and when you look at it um uh four foot strike shows significantly smaller magnitude of a lot of different things so uh, what they're looking at is a difference in um Four foot strike, rear foot strike. It didn't have, which I think is kind of funny, a full foot strike, which is the most common foot strike you're going to see in elite distance runners. But here it says in the conclusion that running with a rear foot strike imposed higher biomechanical loads on overall ground impact and knee and patello femoral joints. I think we've all heard that one before. That uh, you know, being more of a rear foot striker is going to increase impact, although it's a depend. Answer, um, as most things are, that also depends on what pace. Uh, the thing that wasn't really sussed out or standardized for here was the expertise level of the runner. So if you're running above, I think the cutoff is between 620 to 630. If you're running above a 630 mile, let's say just for good measure, it's been shown in numerous studies that being a rear foot striker can be advantageous and more mechanically efficient. Um, and I would say when you get above like a nine minute pace running with a four foot strike is probably very false mechanically, and it's going to make you less economic overall. And then it follows up the rear foot strike data with uh four foot strike imposed higher biomechanical loads on the ankle joint and Achilles tendon. So remember we said rear foot strike had a bigger, uh, ground reaction force impact up the chain. So knee and, uh, patellof- or yeah, knee and patellofemoral joint. When we see four foot strike ankle joint Achilles tendon, right? There's more, uh, elastic uh, rebounding that's going to be taking place from the third rocker being activated. The uh, rockers of your foot and ankle. So think uh, heel to midfoot is one, midfoot to forefoot, two, forefoot off big toes, three. Uh, usually when we're distance running, we want to see pretty, pretty good access to all three of those rockers. If you're a sprinter, you're really going to be a, a two, three, right? You're kind of never getting into that first rocker. Uh, and then it follows our summary of all this. The modification of strike techniques may affect the specific biomechanical loads experienced on relevant structures of tissue during your running. So, again, not really new stuff. It's just always good to look at the most uh, up-to-date things. This is from August of last year that you know, you, there's a price to be paid for either uh, running technique here. And the one thing I want to point out here is, that's not explored in this study, which has been studied before is, should you be switching um, foot strike to try to increase performance or decrease injury? All studies would say, no, that you shouldn't. Um, even though there are studies that would show that you're going to have decreased injury by changing to a forefoot structure. I would imagine, again, I'm not going to say because we're not looking at them in this long-term uh Bias. If you switch somebody to a four-foot strike, are you going to get rid of the knee pain or the hip pain that they're probably uh, putting down on their subjective uh, questionnaire? Yeah, but if we follow them for a year, are they going to show back up with calf and ankle and Achilles injuries? Probably, because what should we be? What would be the ultimate goal for most runners that are dealing with some sort of injury uh, that we can rule out? Just a overall, you know the variables that we just talked about a little while ago of pain, you know, all the other environmental extrinsic variables, what well, it would be, we'd want their foot to land under their center of mass. We don't really care too much about what part of their foot hits. That's going to be determined by a lot of different things, speed, flexibility, mobility, uh, you know, like tension relationships of tissue, but we don't want to falsely put their foot on a part of their, or sorry, put them on a part of their foot that they're not supposed to be on. And then the mechanical loads are, you know, uh kind of out of whack for how they're needing to create force. So uh last article here. We're looking out of the Journal of Physical Therapy and Sport. So this is a subclassification of recreational runners with a running-related injury based on running kinematics evaluated with marker-based two-dimensional video analysis. Whoo. Okay, so recreational runners that have an injury, they're looking at running mechanics with uh technology of markers on their body. So why were they wanting to do this? It's to explore whether homogeneous subgroups, right? They're trying to get amateur runners could be discriminated within a population of recreational runners with a running related injury based on running kinematics. So they just wanted amateur runners and then looking at their mechanics to determine which one's had an injury. Interesting study, right? Um, what are they looking for? They're looking for foot and tibia inclination at initial contact. So two things they're looking at is basically dorsiflexion angle of your ankle, but then also uh, lean of your tibia, right? And we you can get into kind of all sorts of crazy thoughts with uh, you know difference between speed and endurance runners of that forward lean of the tibia at impact. So this is what they found: the existence of different subgroups demonstrate that the same running-related injury can be represented by different kinematic presentations. So let's pause there. That you could have I don't. Let's, we're just using an example, you could have 10 people all with knee pain and they could all run very different and they all have the same knee pain. I'm air quoting there for people that aren't watching. It also goes on to say that a subclassification based on the kinematic presentation may help clinicians in their clinical reasoning process when evaluating runners with running related injury and could inform targeted intervention strategy developments. So Sorry, I'm gonna back up here. So the existence of different subgroups demonstrate that same running related injury can be represented by different kinematic presentations. So I just think it's interesting I had to reread that to make sure I'm saying. So they're saying that different subgroups, right? That if stratify these, you're gonna have people that run differently can have the same injury, but then they're saying that we could use that to then target intervention. This gets into, and I'm, I'm shaking my head for those people that aren't watching. This gets into my, what I call the golden Gate rule. As cheesy as that sounds, is that we try not to manipulate gait falsely um, to intervene with pain or injury. Why? You're more than likely, unless you've falsely gotten coached into an injury by trying to alter your gait already, you're probably running in such a way that your body needs you to do those things. Just like walking is like a thumbprint, right? Or a fingerprint it's very unique to you. And then all the things that have come to that, that session of walking or running, right. All the previous injuries, how tight you are that day, uh, fatigue, uh, all these things, hydration level. So then to say that we're going to look at subgroups and say, Oh, this person run that way. They have knee pain. Maybe if we alter that, we'll get that man. You hate to say this because yeah, it'd be easier to say that we could use these sub classifications and have a bit of a protocol of what we're trying to look at. But the truth is, it's always n equals one. Yeah, we have ideals of gait, we have things that we think are going to correlate to injury, like having uh, your foot land further out in front of your center of mass than we would like um a huge breaking action with that that's occurring that's increasing impact um a lot of movement outside of the sagittal plane right into the the coronal plane or the transverse plane like we know that these things can correlate to injury but then there's runners that break that mold so we don't want to say oh here's a subgroup follow this thing you know and i know anybody that's in treatment isn't really adherent to that but this becomes i hate to use the word dangerous because it's not dangerous we're dealing with runners and injuries nobody's dying here um And this isn't to demean any profession over the other, but like I'm a coach as well. So if we give this information to coaches who don't have the clinical hat to really pull back um, and get the 30,000 foot view, right? When I do a gait analysis, that gait analysis preceded by an intake, a history, a movement analysis, then we get to gait. And I always tell people, gait, by the time I see you run, I already know it's going to happen or I should. Rarely am I surprised because we've seen you move. We know your history. We know your prior injuries that could lead to future injuries. All these things we've talked about today. Um, but when you get this information in the hands of like a, a trainer or a coach, it can become hard for that coach or trainer to then not say, well, hey, I'm an evidence-based you know coach or trainer and I'm following the evidence. So it shows that if somebody runs like this and they have knee pain, that I can switch them out of this and maybe they won't have knee pain. Yeah, but you're also going to frustrate yourself and the client and not be as awesome as you could be if you're not using that N equals one approach. And the only way you can use an N equals one approach is to know what the data says, but know why the data says that and really what the overall aggregate of data says, which in any scenario with any type of injury, with any type of athlete is gonna say, we have schemas, we have archetypes of things, but you still have to look at that person and see, do they fit within that? And they may. But the only way you find that out is through a proper exam. And again, non-clinicians can't diagnose, but you're, you're diagnosing. If you say, hey, somebody lands way out ahead of their center of mass, you just diagnose them with that. Why they land way out in front of their center of mass is the, the issue. And it's not just coaching them to land under the center of mass because they may not be able to. And guess what you're going to do? Probably not only perturb what's going on, but maybe create a different issue altogether. Whew so five articles today a lot of information chirofoam.com backslash episode 22. Uh, if you ever have any questions comments concerns things you want to know about uh, you can always email me drbowbeard at gmail.com i'm on all social media at drbowbeard and here pretty soon you'll be able to check out the new website bowbeard.com where there'll be a lot of new resources Uh, upcoming classes, all the podcasts move over there. I'm going to start getting into a bit more writing. So look forward to that. And I appreciate you guys uh, listening and watching. See you next time.